0818-715-815. Hello, good afternoon. You are very welcome to Lifeline. Katie Hannan with you until three o'clock today. And this week we've been touching on uh, a lot of issues around dying and traditions and rituals around death. And that has got some of our listeners thinking about their own death. Uh, Pat, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Katie. How are you? Hiya, Pat. This has put put the, your, your own mortality into your head. What, yeah. what are you thinking? Well, it was a debate whether it's going to be made illegal that somebody cannot choose to go to Switzerland um, to uh, die in, in um, what would you call it, in... To be a, uh, assisted death as well. Yeah. Assisted, assisted death. death. Yeah. yeah. With a bit of, of dignity. Because um now I did speak years ago to Pat Kenny on, on, on RT. I, I feel very strongly about it. I've discussed it with my own children and my husband. Um if I was very, very sick with whatever disease I I, I have had or would have I would rather end it than be um, dying at home or in a nursing home or hospital or whatever. And uh, depending on uh, nurses, doctors, whatever, to um, look after me, clean me, wash me. Um, If I couldn't speak, um, I just think I would be a burden on the family and I would hate to be like that. Now, I know it's very controversial and I know I'd probably get into trouble from different sources, but I feel, and I think a lot of people feel, you know, if you have a pet that you really dearly love and you've had it for years and it's in agony, uh, dying of some horrible disease, you go to the vet and very gently the vet puts the dog to sleep. Now, I know there's a difference between a dog and are an animal and 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 a human being, but that's the way I feel, and I feel very strongly about it. Yeah. And how do your family feel about it? Because uh, obviously, be 100%. they wouldn't be a hundred percent. Yeah, because I mean, that's yeah. that's really a huge part of it. Because you may yeah. yourself not be in a position to, yeah, you know, yeah. help yourself in uh, in this situation, but you would you would need your family or some loved one on board. Oh yeah, we have discussed it over years. Yes, we have. It's a difficult conversation, Pat, to have, isn't it? It is, but it is and it isn't. I mean, they agreed with me that they'd hate to end up like, I know the word is horrible, a vegetable, you know. They wouldn't like that either at all, you know. Um, Now, I know people, like my husband is in a nursing home, but he's very with it and and, uh, he just needs um, help. But um, that's fine, you know, that's grand. But if you're in a hospital bed just fading away, starving away, you can't do anything, you know, that's when I think it really comes to the crunch that, yeah, it's a decision I would make, definitely. Your husband wouldn't agree with you? Oh, he does, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's perfectly fine. He's just immobile. But um, he just... Depends on on the the carers and the nurses where he is in the fabulous nursing home, but um, oh no, he would agree with me and my three my three daughters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And have you discussed at what point you would want an intervention like this? Like because that's obviously well, a huge have, part of this debate. Yeah, we have really. Like if 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 it was me, and I couldn't speak, I couldn't eat, I was slowly dying in a bed. That's when, but you need your faculties a little bit to be able to say to them, now lads, time is up, off we go. You know, I know that sounds probably very flippant. But I suppose the point is, Pat, that if you're capable of saying time's up, off we go, you might still want, you, you know, you you might still think you've got a bit of life in you and you might want to hang on. It's it maybe if you had some, for instance, a a stroke or something ca- catastrophic that would, you know, render you unable yeah. to ask for that yeah. to happen. That's yeah. that's where you, the decision goes into somebody else's hands then. I, I, I agree there. And I suppose really it should be um, 
written down somewhere with uh, the knowledge of a, a lawyer or somebody, you know. I haven't gone into it that far. But it was just, I rang the other day just because I did hear this, this uh, that they might change the, the, the law. And um, I, I think for an awful lot of people might agree with me, an awful lot of people won't agree with me. I know that. Yeah, this is, of course, the Iraq. This, uh, there's a committee in Iraq, place yeah, now yeah, yeah, and they're yeah. hearing expert evidence from both sides mm-hmm. of this with people with. And, and mm-hmm. I have to say, I don't know if anybody saw, Primetime did a, a very extensive report on this a couple of weeks ago. Um, I didn't. It no. was, but but it, was one, it was very, there's very compelling arguments to be made on both sides of it. I, that, that, that's, what, I agree. that's what I think you would I come agree, away from. Casey. Oh, yeah, I agree. I agree. But going back to that case, I can't remember the couple's name. She wanted to go to Switzerland, but actually she died before that happened. And um, her husband, her partner, has been fighting for it for, for years and years and years. I can't remember their names. Uh, Tom. Mary. It was Tom, Tom and, and Mary, Tom. yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was a very sad case, you know. I mean, well, the, he went through the mill because he just wanted to do what his partner wanted to, to do. Yeah, that's Tom Corn, of course, and he has campaigned yeah. on this for, yeah. for very many years. And he's still campaigning. Yeah. His wife, as you say, Mary Fleming, passed away. Yeah, Mary, uh, but yeah. She, she had... Um, a life-limiting uh, illness for That's for right. for a long time, and she saw Years. what was coming. And they yeah. they yeah exactly they're very very high-profile com- campaigners on very. this. And I, mm-hmm. I think Tom Corn would say that he still helps uh, get information and and put people put, puts people in the way of all the details of what options there are out there. Um, but of course, the, the, that case did go to the Supreme Court here. And under our yeah. current constitution, she did not win the right. To, uh, the, no, yeah, I know, I know. But you know, I can see your point when you say, you know, if you have, unfortunately, a stroke that you cannot speak. Well, yeah. What what does your family do? You know, I suppose it should be written down. Um, left with your your will. I don't know. I don't know how how you'd really. I haven't gone into the ins and outs of it, but I just think it's um, it's wrong not to have the option. That's really basically my point. That you should have some control over this yourself. Yes. 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 And yeah. in terms of people then who maybe would have diminished, you know, agency would have, yeah. you know. I know. Need we worry about that? That's, I suppose that's the other side of the argument that we well, know that, that elder abuse is an issue. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, I agree. I agree. But if I think if a couple decide if anything happens to either of them and they end up, you know, really worse than death itself, that they should be allowed the choice to, to go somewhere and, and end it. Mm. Or, or indeed to do it at home, I, I presume. Or to do it at home, yeah. Yeah, I mean, lots of people say, oh, I have my tablets for when, you know, but then you mightn't have the ability to do that, you know. I don't want to end up like that anyway. Nobody does. Did, you know? Have you seen uh, that? But, have you had first-hand experience of that? Because I know that, that that's what changes a lot of people's minds about this, that they, you know, they, they get up close to a situation where mm-hmm. they feel they wouldn't want to be in that situation themselves. Mm, I have, yeah. Mm. And you are quite firm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I won't go into the ins and outs, but somebody who's had stroke after stroke after stroke, um, and just watching them fading was a terrible thing when yeah. you're young, you know, and it's one of your parents. Yeah. I, um, mm, but that's the way I feel anyway, Kate. I suppose I'll get into a heap of trouble well, now from well, friends I and everybody. I don't think you will, Pat. I think there's a there's a debate. You know, we're, we're all going to have to have this debate. I think we're, we're, yeah. we're ultimately almost certainly going to be asked to vote on this at some stage in the not too distant yeah. future. So I think mm-hmm. we're going to have to talk about it. And I'm sure, as you say, there'll be many people who will oh. feel exactly as you feel. Um, yeah, but there'll be 
there will be many, many people who will definitely disagree with me. And I can see where one of the points is, your, you know, your partner, your, your loved one, somebody that's very, very ill, maybe dementia, Alzheimer's, and you're just fed up of it. And you give them an overdose. Do you know what I mean? It's got to be written and agreed. Well, that's that's about. the that's the slippery slope argument, isn't yeah, it? Once you yeah, allow some yeah, any form yeah. of assisted dying, you yeah, you open the, yeah. up that that fear. Uh, will you stay there, okay. Pat? Because I, I do have somebody I think yeah. who does agree with you, uh, Philip. Okay, Philip. Good afternoon. Right. Good afternoon, Katie. Uh, so, will you give Pat some comfort there that she's not alone here? <laughs> no, Pat, you're not alone. A hundred percent. It's Good. it's an absolutely no, no. It's it's you, you, your points are very well made. I'm coming in on it from the angle that it's about the quality of life, Pat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yes. I, you know, th- th- there are issues of pain, there are issues of terminal illness. But for me, the quality of life to me is the criteria that if we get You're to a stage right. where, yeah, we don't know how to look after ourselves, we can't use the bathroom, we can't feed ourselves, mm-hmm. it's time then. And, and uh, there is no doubt that there is a, a bit of a groundswell of opinion at the moment. I feel yes. that there is something happening in the, with, with the Irish people that they want to talk about this. And, I think uh, it's I very have, important, ex- yeah. Yeah, yeah. I you, was explaining to the researcher earlier that I have a lot of contacts in Belgium. Yeah, and, and it's, it's legal. Mm-hmm. it is legal there, of course. Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I've been visiting mm-hmm. there for over 20 years. I have a lot of very right. good friends there. And this is not a big yeah. issue. This is an issue which is treated like... But this all about the preparation path. And most yeah. most of my most of my friends there have made arrangements. Now they're 100 percent healthy, but they've, yes, they've made arrangements that if and when the time comes, mm-hmm. together with their families, of course, together with their legal advisors, together with their medical advisors, that if and when yeah. the time comes, that it will be done as a as a routine to, to get them to the stage where they're not necessarily they haven't got the quality of life that they would be entitled to. And it seems to work well for them. I have had no issues in, with the conversations I've had with my friends there. In fact, it, it has more or less encouraged me to try and encourage up the Irish people. We've had divisive debates before, Pat, and it will be divisive. Oh, it is divisive. I know, I there, know, I know. There are moral issues. Philip, is it? Yeah. That's your name, sorry. Philip, how do they go to a lawyer? Do they have it written down? What's the procedure? Or yeah. is it just with the my, family? My, no, my understanding is that it is a very, yeah. very le- legally binding document. Right. It is. Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned about mm. making a will. My understanding mm. would be that not everybody, but a lot of my friends would have made the arrangements. I had one example where a very good friend of mine, obviously no names necessary, but okay. his mum had been, she was, she was about 90, a lovely lady, met her many, many times, great lady. Mm-hmm. She got COVID. She got COVID. Mm-hmm. And she was brought into the hospital and during the treatment and the investigations, they discovered a, oh. a large tumour in her lung. Right. So they, they, they discussed it. She had already discussed it with her family and I know it's, it sounds macabre it maybe, but it's not. No, they, they, no, they arrange the no. time and the date, and no. most of the hospitals there have a special section or a special unit for. It's, they they, they yes. call it euthanasia, uh, but it yes. is assisted dying. It's the same. Yes. She moved to yes. that special unit. Everything was calm. Everything was in control, and I can and assure you that her family, can be her with family, you. Yeah. they were with her, and everything yeah. was fine. And they grieved her. They grieved her just as much as if. We would grieve families who die, what we call, I a natural understand. way. Mm. This is also a natural way. This is also a natural way, as far as I'm concerned. Philip, can I ju- can I just say to you because I, I, I Bel- isn't it in Belgium where they had that very big controversy about um, a young woman being allowed? Uh, yeah, d- 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 this was just in the last year. A very young woman in her twenties, yes, as I yes, recall, Katie. and she yes, was Katie. suffering from depression. Um, yes, Katie, you will, you will always have issues, Katie. We had a, ver- a great debate about termination, didn't we? And we, the people decided to, to, to vote in favour. And there were issues that could be said, oh, well, maybe Down syndrome. You always have issues, mm, right? Mm, and and mm, if, 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 we do, if we allow the exceptional issue to dictate what we do for the majority, then we'll never do anything. 
Okay, will you will you hang on with me, Philip, um, and Pat as well, please? Because I know Frank yeah, Fra- Frank has has uh, called in and he's been listening to you both. Frank, okay. y- you would have concerns about this. Yes, um, I, I work as a mental health social worker, probably for nearly thirty years, and um, I help out in a in a local parish and I visit kind of elderly people and all that kind of stuff, and um, I suppose. It's it's it, the conversation can be very blase. Um, words like a, a burden. Um, um, the, the reality is nobody should ever feel a burden. Um, there's an intimacy in caring for my own mother when she was losing her memory. There's mm-hmm. an intimacy in and respecting old age. There's a there's there's a there's what I think now and what I think in a years time. Like we're all getting older. I'm not as fit as I was. Um, some of the old people I visit, they're in electric wheelchairs and they still want to be out and about. Um, I, I was involved in a funeral of a 97-year-old man and up until the week he died, he was holding his wife's hand in a nursing home. I, I visit older people who've had operations and yes, like myself, we, when we have an operation, of course someone's going to have to help us go to the bathroom. But these, these, are, things, there's, there's, these are things that are not to be feared necessarily. Um, and, but, but, but the biggest concern, and I think most people recognise this, is the mental health ground. Um, I work as a social worker, as I said. I, I do a lot of work with, with supporting staff in, in assessing people who are at risk of suicide. And usually people who, who get isolated and are burdened, and, and they think they're a burden, and they feel they can't talk about what's happening. Um, and the reality is our health, our health service gets criticised so often I visit nursing homes regularly and, and people, they get criticised during COVID for, for limiting visits. But, but the quality of care, those of you who are listening in who work in nursing homes and see the gentle care of, of attendants and how they show dignity, the fun that happens in nursing homes, you know, people have quizzes, they sing songs. Elderly people may not be able to jump on a bus anymore. Um, it's, I mean, life is, we're all going to die. And, and of course, we have legislation here. We, we're bringing in advanced healthcare directives. Um, patients I work with are sometimes told, look, if you have another heart attack, do you want us to resuscitate you with all that involves or won't we? And if they don't have capacity, the family can be saying, look, so-and-so perhaps will only live another six months. Um, I have had the pleasure of seeing a couple of people in, in um, Harold's Cross and in St. Francis Hospice. Uh, one of my best friends died of cancer a couple of years ago. She was in the hospice and she told the staff there, please don't increase my morphine until I say goodbye to my children. Um, and they didn't. And then they increased her morphine and she died peacefully the next day. There's a dignity in living. There's a dignity in dying. Um, so, yes, there may need to be some change, perhaps if someone, um, you know, someone is going to die very soon. But doctors are doing this all the time. They increase. The key is that people don't suffer. And our palliative care hospitals and hospices, they do a tremendous job, absolutely tremendous job. And it's undermining healthcare professionals and doctors to be blasé and comparing a human person to putting your dog down it's really, really offensive. I, I don't really think, to be fair now, Frank, I don't think Pat was being blasé at all. Uh, uh, Pat, I'll, I'll let you just respond to that for a second because... Yeah, no, I, I, I wasn't... Uh, no, I didn't mean it like that whatsoever. As I, I did reiterate that I wasn't comparing uh, humans to animals. Um, what I do think, though, you spoke about a lady there that... Um, just said, don't up her morphine until um, she's said goodbye to her children. Um, that's more or less what I kind of mean as well. If you're in hospital and you know that there's no, you know, you, you're not going to recover. Oh, and, and you're in agony and you're being kept alive by painkillers and oxygen and all this sort of thing. I personally, this is me. I'm not speaking for anybody else. Personally, I do not want to end up like that. It's very simple. I, I don't mean it's very simple. What I'm trying to say is I'm not, I'm not preaching that everybody should, if they feel they're getting old or sick, that they should um, uh, be put out of their misery. That's the way I feel. And that's the way my 
children feel and my husband. It's a very personal thing. And I'm sorry if I did come across as comparing animals to human beings. I had absolutely no intention of doing that at all. But I think, Frank, the the, the point has been made and I've, I've, you know, moderated other discussions about this where people say, you know, you would not let um, a pet, a, a dog or a cat suffer mm. the way that they have seen loved ones suffer. And they, they mm. do make that comparison that we, 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 you know, we feel like it's we shouldn't allow another living animal to suffer. But we, you know, so why do we why do we think it's mm-hmm. ethically and morally uh, good okay. and OK to, to allow the loved ones suffer? Because some, yeah, some, sometimes the suffering up. isn't yeah. brief, obviously. Sometimes it goes on for, for weeks and months and even years. Okay, Katie, just to come back on the, and obviously I respect Pat, but with that analogy of putting a dog down, the reality is um, if you have a dog, dogs don't live as long as human beings. And when they get very, very old, the the fees and the the kennel costs and the veterinary costs are very, very expensive. So the the unwritten message here is, you know, we're we're going to put our our loved dog down because it's so expensive to keep them alive. And we don't have palliative care for dogs. We don't have morphine for dogs. Um, so the, the whole notion, nobody should be in pain. Suffering is inevitable. Like every, every person will lose a loved one or they'll break a leg or their back will give them jip um, or they have severe enduring mental illness. The majority of people I work with who have severe enduring mental illness recover. They recover with medication. They recover with support. The biggest killer. I was at a, a support group for bereaved people last night, and there was there was mm-hmm. there was a, a man in his fifties who was bereaved, bereft about his elderly mother. There was somebody else who was bereaved because of a partner, and they are. De- I mean, my own mother, my father. You know, you kind of think if you if you could have them back for another week. Now, obviously, some people have a heart attack and die, and some people have cancer. My own mm-hmm. father died of cancer. The care he got. Was, was tremendous. Um, I had the most intimate conversations I ever had with my father on his deathbed. So mm-hmm. we have excellent healthcare services and despite the bashing of the HSE and of nursing homes, the palliative care of our loved ones when they're at that stage in mm-hmm. life, it is so mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. And the conversation should be, yes, of course, there's some, there's some element in, in extreme cases. But we need to hear from the palliative care nurses and doctors and those of us who have experienced the love they've given to and they've facilitated conversations that we couldn't have had. Frank, we hadn't had a period of time. Frank, sorry mm-hmm. to cut across you uh, because I just, uh, as it happens, we have uh, Karen on, on a line here and you have worked as a palliative care nurse, Karen, am I right? Yes, you're right, Katie, yeah. Um, in a hospice setting? Uh, my work would have been in the home care. So I worked in the Irish Cancer Society in the Hospice Foundation's home nursing care. So we used to do seven nights at the bedside of a person who was dying. So it would be the last seven nights of their life. Right. OK, so you were right there at the cold face. Wh- yeah, so literally. Wh- where do you stand then on this? Because your, your, your uh, perspective on it would be, you know, really interesting to us now. I absolutely am unequivocal unequivocally pro-choice on this that I will be very much pro-voluntary assisted dying. I think it's very unfair of anybody to assume that they can speak on behalf of a person who is a consenting adult who is saying clearly my wish is to not have um, you know major interventions towards the end of my life my wish is to be allowed to die and very often that's not something that people that's not a decision that people make in the very terminal phase in those last seven nights of life it's not those people that this applies to. It's people who have been given a diagnosis or who are living with long-term chronic illnesses that they know are not going to improve. They know that the end of this health journey for them is death. I mean, all of us are going to die. But when you know that your death is going to be as a result of a long period of suffering, I don't see how it is possibly relevant for our constitution to insist that people endure that just because of a perception or a moral value that's been placed on, you know, not, not intervening in, in death. Because very often the intervention is to keep the person alive, which is the same thing, you know, it's two sides of the same coin. So I absolutely think, and, and to say that, you know, oh, people have great fun in nursing homes and 
end of life care and, and later aged care in, in every country should be the best it possibly can. Everybody should be supported and facilitated to live the best possible life they can until the time comes that they die. Some people know that they're not going to be able to live like that. It doesn't matter where they are. It doesn't matter what they get. So they need to be supported in the choices that they make for themselves with the support of their healthcare team and their family. And nobody else should intervene in that. No politicians, no constitution. It should be between the person, their family and their healthcare supporters. You know, we talk a lot about a good death. Uh, you know yeah. that that you know this is what you wish for yourself and for 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 anyone. You would say, I hope it was. I hope it's a good death. Yeah. You know, is there? Have you seen good deaths, Karen? Yes, and I work at the funeral settlement. I'm actually in Newlands crematorium at the moment, waiting to hold the ceremony at two <laughs> thirty. Um, and I, I mean, I hear the stories of people's deaths. And uh, only only a couple of days ago, I held a ceremony for a woman whose family spoke so beautifully of her death. And if they're listening now, I mean, and they may. They they would be proud, I think, to think of that. But um, I described her death right at the very end. She had she chose her last meal. Her last thing she ate was tiramisu. She had her fa- as many of her family present as possible, and she she said, "I think it's going to be today," and she passed. And that is a beautiful, um, that is a beautiful death. And she 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 died sooner than she would have ideally wanted. She was ill. She had cancer. Um, and she, she had an acceptance that the time was here and she was ready and she'd lived a beautiful life and left a beautiful legacy in her children and grandchildren. Um, that's, the life, that's the death that we would ideally like to have in a lot of ways. Um, not everybody gets that privilege, but if we can possibly help people to have a death like that, we should do everything we can to support that. And you think that, that introducing assisted dying into the, into the legislation here would be part of that? Absolutely. And I think when we look at Irish people and this nation, we have had three major referenda in the last decade, divorce, marriage equality and abortion. And Irish people have voted overwhelmingly in favour of all of those. And that's because we are voting for choice. We understand choice. We want to give people choice. And we should not be denying people that choice for the sake of a small number of people who want to hold on to a notion of it tends to be related to sanctity of life or something like that. And, And absolutely, life is... There's a sanctity of life for everybody. And again, that's what we're reinforcing is in order to have a sanctity of life, you have to have a sanctity for death as well. And rather than push people into a death that is difficult and exhausting and horrendously... And I don't even want to speak like that. It's not always like that either. But if we can save somebody that, this is what we should be aiming to do. This is what we should be striving to do. And this is what our healthcare system should be supporting, not constantly trying to intervene and force life. We should be allowing and facilitating life to flow and end when it needs to. What about, sometimes that's my choice of it, doing it. What yeah. about Karen? And I know you'll have to go shortly to, to do to, to do that funeral. Uh, <laughs> but just put put this to you because it, there is the slippery slope argument. The idea that that case we were mentioned Belgium earlier. There was a really high profile case there last year where a very young woman who had been through a very traumatic she'd been caught up in a, a an ISIS uh, bombing. Um, she had never recovered from that. She was only in her early 20s, uh, but, you know, she had severe mental health um, trauma from that. And she was being granted uh, the the ability to, to, to end her life. Like, so that's that's that, the other side. Of, yeah. Yeah, I, I hear you. I also hold a lot of funerals for people who die by suicide. And really the other side of the coin for that person is she wants to end her own life. That's actively, I mean, we're into semantics in some ways, but if she wants to end her life, she's come to a point where she does not wish to continue. She, I mean, if she doesn't get granted the permission to do this, she will probably progress to end her own life and then it's a criminal act rather than, you know, it, it's very difficult. We can't control people in the way that we might want to. And we can't also take the stance that if one young person is allowed that, it's going to open the floodgates because that doesn't tend to be true. You know, people do... People are sovereign beings in their own right. They understand the decisions they're making. A person also now will always need proper support as they make these decisions. I'm never saying that it should be a flippant decision. She decides this today and, you know, tomorrow. She should have every possible support that she can have in her trauma and in her space so that she is really supported in making an informed choice, an informed decision and doing with as much support as she possibly can. But I do believe that I I firmly believe in choice in all situations. Okay, Karen, thank you for that. Uh, It's a good perspective to get. As I say, you have been right at the coalface of this for for many years. Um, Can I bring in Bridget, though? Bridget, you have a really 
interesting perspective on this because you would have you would have agreed with Karen at one point, but you've changed your mind. Well, it's very important that I change my mind because I've had, you know, the experience of having my first stroke. I'm now 75. I was 67 when I had my first stroke. Um, I was very, very bad and my family were all called to say goodbye. I was in the hospital. I was just lying in my bed. I couldn't speak. I wasn't alert. I wasn't alert. I just could not speak. It was like I was on my last legs. Did, did so you did you think, said, Bridget, did you think at that stage you were you were on your way out? Well, I I couldn't have any vision or, you know, because that's the way I, I was after the stroke. Mm-hmm. I had no ability to think properly. Oh, you were unconscious but at this stage, yeah. I was, yeah. I was very, very ill, lying in my bed and no sort of talking to my family or anything. But I used to say... And now I know it was a joke to say to a niece of mine, if anything's helps, help, and if anything happens to me, I just take all my medication together. Because that was, it. now I think it was a kind of a joke. But anyway, as a result of that, I was in that hospital for four months. I came home then in January, and in March I was back in with another stroke. Gosh. So as time went on, um, I saw... I was in the hospital, they tried medication, they tried to get me walking, they were very, very good. But then I moved to another uh, hospital because fortunately I had the ability to see another doctor in Beaumont. Now I was sent in there and I still had these little seizures but my speech was still very bad and my memory was bad and I was in a ward and everybody would be talking you know, around each other, and I would just sit there. But anyway, that doctor said, we have to find out what's happened. If something has happened to cause these strokes, he said. But he said, trying to look at your vein in your head, he said, we can't see anything because the blood is all congealed around it. But he said, we will keep you and safe until we can get that scan done. So when they did the scan, they realised it was one of the veins that had burst. Right. And then they asked me, would I agree? It was a dangerous operation, but I'd have to accept it. So at that stage, I kind of had a good thought about myself because there were at times when I just didn't want anything more to be done. I just So I rang my daughter and I said... Can you help me? I have to make this decision. She just had her baby and she came up straight away. I said, Mary Trace, what am I going to do? I said, I can't make my decision. She said, Mom, you can't go on like this. Just try and get positive. So positive meant I accepted it. So they opened the side of my head to join that little vein that I'd bled. And then I start to get better get better, get better. I developed epilepsy. I've had seizures. Six months I could have another seizure. And six months I could have another seizure. Three months I could have another seizure. But then I'm with Professor Delante in Beaumont. He has changed my medication. My husband passed away last June, oh. 17th, 18th <clears throat> of June last year. Sorry to hear he that, said, I want. Yeah, but he said to me when he was in the hospice, he was very, very sick. He was very, very... The palliative nurses came to him all day and they were angels, angels. And they spoke to him and they said, Michal, I think it's time that you go to the hospice. And I said, does he understand? Because he wouldn't want to leave his house. And they said, Michal understands. So I said, OK. And then he went in there. He was quite sick, but he still had the ability to talk and to walk with his frame, and then he got worse. They had him on a lot of medication, but he kept on going. And then on Friday night, I was leaving him, and he said to me, I want you to sit at the couch here with me. I said, oh, are you going to tell me your money? Because he had left a few, Bob, and I didn't know where it was. So he said, no, I want to tell you something else. I said, and what is that? He said, I just want you to know if anything happens, I'll always be with you. Now, if I had decided he was gone to heaven, 
by his own will or I was gone to him, how could we have that death relationship? And explain why it's so important that you get through your illness. You know, and people can, from very serious illnesses that I've had, get through it without your faith. Now, I'm not a, so, a very religious person, but I do believe in God. And I do believe in palliative nurses. They're angels. That's all I could call them, angels, to help you get along. So the next morning at five o'clock, my daughter drove into the guard there and she said, Dad has passed away. And that's what he wanted. The quiet, no fuss. And he knew, obviously, he knew that was the last He night. knew, he knew. And as I was leaving his ward, he said to me, and I'm going to have a chat with my mother. And then today, I'm listening to, they kept saying it was Ryan Tubbert, or what you call your man, but anyway. And then you know what came on that programme? Grace just told me his favourite song. Oh. How long were you married, Bridget? Um, today, we would have been 51 years married. Today is your anniversary? Today is anniversary, the 4th of October. Ah, oh, Bridget. I'm telling you, you have to keep your faith. Really, you have to keep your faith and your hope and your heart to love the people. Okay, they're going through a bad, t- a bad time. I went through a bad time. And they, they even told me, my son and my daughter said, Mom, you were telling us you've had enough. But look at me now. So, I mean, so is your, if I had taken what, my own life then... Yeah, so you're saying that where you might have been flippant before and say, you know, I'm not, you know, if anything happens, we all, we all, we all say it, a lot of us say it, you know, push mm, me under a bus, mm, you know, give me mm, all my tablets, mm, all of that. Mm, mm. You're saying that, you, you know, you appreciate what you have now and you're glad. Absolutely, absolutely. Now I can't drive, you know, and things like that. But other than that, I'm so independent. I live here on my own now. I have a great son, a great daughter, son-in-law, daughter-in-law, and they support me so, so. And I have a very good family. Thank God for that. And as you say, you think that if people had been through what you've been through, they might change their mind about this. Well, you know, I mean, life is for a living, isn't it? It's not your decision to, to die. It's it's the man above. Now, maybe that sounds very religious but I think it's up to the man above to decide if you want them to come home. Now, I know Michal is in heaven, whether you think that's flippant or whether it's my belief. And I know he will be there. And I know he is with me. His ashes are around my my neck. And I feel that his, his touch is at my back, left shoulder. So people might think that's crazy. But the fact that Grace came on this morning on the radio, out of the blue, on her anniversary. That's you think, so that's, you that's, that me hall. that's me Hall. That's me Hall. Oh, think, absolutely. Saying, saying yeah. hi, saying, saying happy anniversary, case. Bridget. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people might think I'm a head case, but maybe I am in a sense. I never lost my humour. <laughs> you didn't, Bridget. Fair play to you. Fair play to you. Listen, they're telling me I have to take a break here. I hate going away from you, but thank you thank you so no, much for that, Bridget. Grand. And happy Not anniversary. Thanks for, for explaining to me or listening to me. Bye-bye, Pat. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. And I want to bring in Catherine now. Catherine, good afternoon. Hello, Katie. Yeah, nice ca- to talk to you. Yeah, Catherine, uh, yeah, where do you stand on this, Catherine? Uh, I have been, I've just retired. I was a nurse for 47 years. But I also grew up with a father that had multiple cirrhosis and was bedbound and nursed at home for 10 years. He was 20 years sick when we were young. There were seven of us. Right. Um, I think, and I think if he had been able to, he wouldn't have wanted to be nursed by his wife and seven children for that. And knowing my medical history from my family. I think I made my will a couple of weeks ago and I should have been able to make my health will a couple of weeks ago. And it should be honoured. I don't have a family 
of children. Mm-hmm. So who was going to look after me? Nursing homes, my mother went into a nursing home and got great care. But when she went into the nursing home before the dementia hit, she had made with me her mind up for not resuscitation. And we honoured her wishes. And the doctors in the nursing home honoured her wishes. So we should be all able to make up our own mind when we are of a sound mind. If we can make a will, why can't we make a health will? Tell what me, we want to do. Tell me about, and I just wonder, just as you say it there, was the fact that you, you, you know, you were all brought on board as, as nurses, basically, and as carers for your father. Did that impact your decision to go into nursing afterwards, Catherine? No, no. That people always thought I went into nursing because dad was sick. No, that was normal. Dad was sick in a nurse, in a hospital bed for 10 years. We had a hoist. That was family. That was... That was the way it was. It must have been very tough though, was it? No, it had nothing to do with going into nursing. I went into nursing to travel and I did my travelling and it's a brilliant job to travel and I loved nursing but I loved making people better. But you have somebody that has a severe stroke and they have no family, they go into a nursing home and they've no one to visit them. Yeah. That's not right. So they should, we should be able, when we are of sound mind, to make up our own mind what we want to do, especially if you have a family history of neurological diseases or heart diseases. But is, yeah, yes, sorry, Catherine. No, I was just wondering, because of your personal family experience, I'm just wondering how difficult that was or was it just something that was part of your family life or was it something that... Yes, it was part of... No, it wasn't difficult. It was part of family life. We just got on with it. My mother was brilliant and she was a five foot two woman and my father was six foot two and he was totally bed bound for uh, 10 years. But why do you think that your father wouldn't have wanted it if... Because of things he said when he had moments of lucidity. Right he would say it. And he didn't want to be a burden. He was only 62 when he died. Now, my brothers and sisters mightn't agree with me. This is just my personal thing. And knowing my... But but I, it has hit me that we can make a will, we can leave everything on this earth to different people. But we can't make a life will for ourselves as to what we want to do. But Other it, people govern it. And in terms of, you said your mother uh, wanted, had, wanted to have do not resuscitate, uh, or do not yes. resuscitate order. Can we not all do that? Would, that? would that not be something we could tell our GPs or? We can, but that's, she had an underlying heart condition. So she had had bypass surgery. She had dementia now, so which exacerbates um, heart conditions. So she knew and she didn't want to be a burden to anyone. Now, in we had her at home for a couple of years and my sister was brilliant with her. And But in the end, we had to put her for her own safety into a nursing home, which was brilliant. And they looked after her very well. But that is not what I want for myself. And that's what people should be looking at. What do you want for yourself? You know, do you want somebody to... Fair dues if you want want somebody to look after you. I certainly don't. I will lock my gates and leave me alone (laughs) and (laughs) let it happen. I don't want anyone. I have a husband and he agrees with me. Both of us agree. But we don't have any children. So who looks after us? There's nobody there. And there's an awful lot of our age group that do not have children, be it for whatever reason. Um, And that's another day's story. But who looks after us? You can't expect your nieces and nephews and all that sort of thing. You know, you get on with it. You make your own decisions. And why can't we make our own decisions? And would you have any... um 
truck with some of the arguments that maybe Frank was making there or, or people who would be concerned about this would put forward in terms of... No, but if you if your will is valid with the solicitor, why can't your living will and death will be valid with the solicitor? And they're your wishes when you are of sound mind, not waiting till you get sick. Yeah. Like there is a history of strokes in my family. I don't want to wait till I have a massive stroke and I'm lying in the bed there and they're tube feeding me or whatever. That is not what I want for myself. Yeah. yeah. You know, and we should be all able to make our own decisions based on our life experiences. I mean, I nursed for 47 years. I loved it. I was intensive care and I saw people get better and was fantastic. But yeah. I have seen the other side of it. And you see, a lot of people don't see the two sides. Yeah. Pa- pa- sorry, Pat, I think Pat wants to get in there. Do you, Pat? Yes, I do. I, I agree with everything that lady had to, to say. And I can see Bridget's point as well. And I am very sorry that her husband died. But what what was that lady that was just speaking? That's Catherine. Never... That's Catherine. Catherine, I agree with Catherine. I'm saying it's for me. I'm not yeah. saying... For you and you or anybody, and I, I admire uh, palliative care. A good friend of mine there had had died, and palliative care was was second to none. But that was the choice that this person made. I think there should be a choice. Okay, Pat, hang on again. Very, hang on again, yeah. uh, Catherine and Pat, because I want to bring in Dempna. Dempna, good afternoon. Yeah. Good afternoon, Casey. Yeah, hi, Dempna. You're, of course, a professor of palliative medicine. That's right, in the west of Ireland. And I've done a lot of world-recognised research on quality of life as well. So I am talking through my voice. I'm talking through the voice of all the patients I've looked after since 1989. And... When a person is suffering bad symptoms, I have certainly seen people have a death wish. But when a person's symptoms are well controlled and the person is supported by excellent palliative care as we have in Ireland, I have never had a person wish for death after their symptoms were controlled. And that's in decades of doing palliative medicine. And one of the Um, subjects that keeps coming up, Katie, that I really want to um, make a point on is this whole fear factor that people with advanced cancer and other bad conditions die in intractable pain. That is not so. Pain control nowadays is excellent. People are driving their cars, going shopping, on morphine if their body needs it. And I would suggest that there should be what we call a point prevalence study done on all very ill people in Ireland on, say, a certain two days or a week. We did this on patients on dialysis in the West, where we looked over two days at all the symptoms the patients had and how bad they were. And if a point prevalence study was done on the prevalence of pain in, say, cancer in Ireland on a certain few days, then we'd know the truth. But for um, kind of the comments to be made that people with cancer will get intractable pain and then they'll want a death wish or they will want assisted dying. That's not the reality. What about though, Demna, you know, there, there's kind of two cohorts of people, two, 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 two groups of people here. There's people that you will come come into contact with that are in the last stages of life and, you know, they're at the end of life care stage and you know, yourself and your fabulous, fabulous people. And I know some of your colleagues in, in palliative care, some of the most brilliant doctors I've ever met. Um, they, they do incredible work, uh, you know, easing people uh, in those in those at those times. But what about somebody who gets a diagnosis where they're going to have where they have a catastrophic stroke, say, and it's not it's not end of life you, that you are looking at a very long period living but with a very, very poor quality of life. And you could be looking at years of this. Is that, yeah, is, I, that surely that's a different, that's a different situation for people and a different thing to ask a person to endure because there is some ethical or moral uh, resistance well, to this? The, the 
answer I'll give Katie is that one of my colleagues, Professor Dominic O'Brannigan, did a time in motion study and found that 91% of our day is helping people to live well, people with bad strokes, people with years to live, people say with ovarian cancer. I've many of my uh, people I look after who get years for on chemotherapy with good quality. And so we are looking after people for years with very difficult conditions. And it's interesting that the last uh, quality of life study we did in the West was picked up in America as the top story of 2020. And what we simply did was in the oncology team, we asked our patients what bothered them and about their symptoms. And in the active group, we fed those that information back to the oncology team and we improved their symptoms by almost 50%. So by talking to people, finding out what's bothering them and addressing those issues, you can really improve quality of life. And quality of life is a lot more complicated than people think because it's not related to often if you say, can you take a long walk? Can you take a short walk? Well, a person may be paralyzed, so they can't walk at all. The questions are irrelevant to that patient group. But if you ask the patient with sequel, which is, was developed in the RCSI by Kieran Boyle and Hickey and Hannah McGee and John Brown, it is a fantastic interview that's validated. And we have many papers published on quality of life that I believe is real quality of life because it's what the patient says their quality of life is. So I do think we need more studies on the prevalence of symptoms and the bother it to people's quality of life. I have seen, I remember years ago having somebody who said, I don't want more, any more hospital admissions. Let me die where I am um, and in a, it was in a kind of nursing home. Mm-hmm. He was young, very complicated condition. And I said, okay, but he wanted to get to an Arsenal match two weeks on. So I put him on this particular drug that stops aspiration into the lungs. Mm-hmm. Would you believe he got 10 years? He had an excellent quality. He was never hospitalized with that condition of aspiration again. And he was fully paralysed. But when he got a better quality and wasn't in and out hospital all the time, he actually had a very good quality. So I'm seeing people all the time. It's not, I'm full-time in the job since 89. And I do know that we see every person with every condition. We see people for years. We help people. We find out what's bothering the person. We try to address it. In fact, we did the sequel interview with the medical students in first year and we said we're introducing the medical student to the person, not the patient. We've published that piece of work. It was always the top pickup in this special study module because the students loved it and they'd come back to you and they'd say, how did Mrs. So-and-so's son get on? Did he get over his drug addiction? Because what might have really bothered the mother was to see her son get into rehab before she died. What matters to people is often very different to what, to what we, we think, perceive. What we think yeah. might matter. And, and D- Dimna, will you hang on? I'm, I'm being yeah, told I have thanks. to take a break. I'm yeah, falling behind thanks. with my break. No, but don't go anywhere, Dimna, because you've got yeah. su- such a great uh, insight into, into this whole area. Uh, we'll take that break. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. And I want to bring in John now. John Wall, good afternoon. Katie, good afternoon to you. Yeah, John, you're actually going to go into this Iraqis committee and make a, a submission. Uh, I am, yeah. I've uh, been invited to, to make a submission, which actually I was writing this morning, uh, next Tuesday. Um, and just to explain to people, you are living with a terminal cancer diagnosis. I am, uh, but I suppose it has to be stressed as well that I'm living very successfully um, and I'm one of those people that was given the dreaded news uh, about six years ago to get my affairs in order, etc. But thankfully, uh, the treatment options that I've chosen in the interim have been successful and uh, I now lead, I guess, what I would call a a normal, happy, healthy life given everything that uh, has has happened over the last uh, number of years. And are you on drugs or do you have to go back for treatment every so often what's your what's your um... no I'm, I'm I'm monitored I've come off everything that I have been on uh, due to I suppose adverse side effects and uh, I've been very very fortunate Katie extremely fortunate but uh, it has worked for me and um, just to explain to I, me, it, it's a it was prostate cancer wasn't it yeah I had primary prostate cancer and secondary in my lymph nodes yeah, because um, I know, I, cause I know you've been you've so. been out there, uh, you know, raising awareness about the need to to check yourself and and 
doing all of that. But uh, it's great to hear that you're you're uh, in such good shape now, John. But you you feel very strongly about this assisted dying legislation. It's it's yeah, it's something I'm very passionate about. Um, over the last number of years, obviously, it's something that I've I've looked at myself, but. I have seen others, uh, sadly no longer with us, who despite the best uh, intervention of uh, the palliative care services in this country, and they are excellent, absolutely superb, I've availed of them myself, and they've given me a quality of life that I once could only have dreamt of. Um, But unfortunately there are some who basically have to suffer in silence. There's not a lot that can be done for them at the end of life. I'm thinking of of one person in particular whom I watched uh, pass away and um, it was very, very difficult passing for himself and his family. Uh, he suffered. The last three days of his life were, were very, very difficult to watch. Um, but everything that could be done was done for him. And I look at a case like that and I think there has to be a better way. And uh, therein lies, I suppose, my passion for uh, assisted dying in that there is a potentially... Um, there is, a, there is an, a, another, there is a better way. And it's something that we're trying to, I suppose, we, I, that I would like to see uh, legislated for. But I think it's important to roll the conversation back to where it started in Ireland. And that's in terms of uh, what we sought was to apply for something. I.e. that if I thought that uh, I was ever going to suffer in the latter stages of my life, that while it's, whilst I'm in the hole of my health now, that uh, a bit like a DNR, I would say to my uh, next of kin, or indeed, however you would apply for something like this, I would say that's something that I would seek when and if the time is right. But it's only an application. There would be professionals involved that would deem whether my application was appropriate and subsequently would um, deem it acceptable and, and to the point where uh, it's something that I could avail of. So you, you mentioned uh, earlier on about the slippery slope mm-hmm. and that's where I think this is very important in that we're not talking about something that would be uh, you know, available carte blanche to anyone should they so, de- so decide. And I am a, also a believer in pro-choice. You know, I listen to all sides of this debate bar none and I think each and every story is important. It's, a, it's an important contribution and one which we can only move forward with this collectively, all sides, regardless of, of what side of the fence we're on. But when you, uh, yeah, sorry, John, but just just going back to what Dempna was saying there, you know, and you would have to accept that she has a lot of experience of people yeah. in the kind of situations you were talking about there. And, you know, she was describing people who might might have opted for a way out. But, you know, once, one, you know, once their symptoms were managed, even when their quality of life for the rest of us might look terrible, for them... They were glad they hadn't they hadn't left this yeah, world, and that's why the the input of Dimpna and uh, all the palliative care services uh, are representatives of and and consultants and doctors and nurses and the industry per se is so important, and then that's why I refer back to the application. Okay, we can all apply or whatever, but it's up to someone that's qualified to do so, or that's deemed qualified to do so, uh, and not one person, multiple persons, to decide whether an application is appropriate or not. And therein lies the conundrum in that it's one thing pro-choice, which I am, and I can decide, OK, that's what I would like. But uh, given, I suppose, uh, an illness that may cloud my judgment or at a point in time where I might think the end is nigh, but in actual fact it may be not, then the medical community intervenes and assists in that decision-making part of the process. And that's crucial, absolutely crucial in this. And you try and negate then... Uh, you know, for exactly just the, the case that uh, that Tintner referred to. But you, you, but what you're saying there, John, is, you know, you 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 will be near, very near the end anyway. When when those, you know, medical professionals would be asked to, to intervene. Yes. What about the other case? Like the more the cases where this, you know, one of the big campaigners was mentioned uh, earlier on in the show, uh, Marie Fleming. Mm-hmm. You know. That that was getting that 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 you know Tom and you know Tom Corrin and Marie Fleming they wanted to be able to make a decision, not necessarily right before the end, but at a time of their choosing, because there was only yes. one way that illness was going to go. So for people who fear the end or, or just do do not want it, not that they fear it, but they just don't want to go there, you know that's. Is that a different argument? Is that something that you would balk? At? I think it's it's 
it's part of the argument, but I think we must walk before we can run. Uh, with something so divisive, the introduction of anything to do with assisted dying needs to be done uh, in such a manner that um, we, it, it's not going to be all-encompassing. It can never be at the start. And I followed uh, Marie and Tom's case quite closely. In fact, I met Tom about a month ago. And I have great sympathy for someone uh, in that position, for, for not the person, their, their loved ones, in that you know that uh, death inevitably is going to happen. And all people seek is a peaceful passing. We've got to bear that in mind as well. Just a peaceful passing. It's not people that are looking to, to terminate their lives at any cost. It's people that are know that uh, in most cases that, you know, their lives will end prematurely as a result of an illness that's incurable. And uh, in Marie's case, uh, she knew she was going to pass. And um, unfortunately, as we all are only too well aware, that did happen. But if we try and legislate for something all-encompassing like that now, I think we're going to run into serious difficulties and we'll end up, you know, we'll continue to talk about it for the next, well, certainly for the rest of my lifetime. I have no doubt about that. And that's why I think it's important to walk before we can run. That if we're going to do it, we need to get it right. If we're going to get it right, we need to pair it back to the basics as to where the conversation started. And that is the right to apply in the case of a terminal illness. And uh, the administration of that in itself is a very difficult thing uh, to do, but something that I believe is eminently uh, achievable and responsibly achievable. And that's something, if we lay the foundations, what we build for future generations will stand the test of time. And that's the important bit. Unfortunately, there are people in the interim that uh, would like to avail of something like this that as a result of certainly my approach uh, or my advocated approach might not be able to, but I believe it's so important that we get it right. Yeah. Because life, life itself is sacred. That's what's involved here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, John, thank you for that. I need to take a break. Uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be back with more after these. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Joe Duffy! Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. And let me bring in Paul now. Paul, good afternoon. Uh, hello, Casey. How are you this afternoon? Where are um, you on this one, Paul? Thanks thank for having me. Uh, Katie, I was just saying to your researcher there, um, I'm a recently retired person living in South Dublin in my mid-60s. And I have to say, having lived and worked in Dublin all my working life, uh, all I can say without going chapter and verse into it, Ireland has changed so much. And I just feel... It's very difficult. It's such an emotional topic. And it's very difficult, first of all, for the medical profession. I have nothing to do with the medical profession, but I feel it's an area that it's almost impossible to police. And I also feel that a lot of people in Ireland, when they become old, they become vulnerable. But they're still quite often owners of substantial property. And I would be very concerned, perhaps maybe as your last speaker said, that if you bring in a law in relation to assisted dying, the potential for abuse as regards disposal of a dead person's property, um, I don't think you need to look too far down the track. And the other thing I was saying to Siobhan, or I think it was Shannon, your researcher, Casey, was, is this. And, you know, our society has become very sophisticated, but it is underpinned by laws that go back a long time. And my main point is that the entire of Western culture, and I'm talking about Europe, and I'm talking about the United Kingdom, I'm talking about Ireland, is all evolved on the basis of an individual not having the right to take their own life, never mind the life of somebody else. And I just feel people need to look really very carefully at this before they would 
bring in something like assisted dying on a statutory basis. Okay, Paul, Paul, that, thank, that, that's thank you for that, Paul, uh, point made and taken. Uh, I just have a number of calls. I'm going to try and get to them before before the top of the hour. Yeah. Uh, can I bring in? Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Jack, Jack, good afternoon. Yes. What's well, Jack, is uh, it? Good, good, how are you? Do we have Jack? Uh, I have you. Do you have me? I have you. I have you now. Okay. <laughs> uh, if I can ask you to be um, uh, brief, uh, Jacques, you right. you have per- first-hand experience of this from a family member. I, I do. And uh, I have a cousin, a very close cousin of mine in Belgium, who died of euthanasia about uh, 214, in 2014. Now, what happened was that he was very, he was getting progressively unwell, and prior to that, he had made all the arrangements. You know, in Belgium, it's very strict. You have to make the arrangement with two or three doctors who will decide, you know, that you come and that you know what you want to do with your life. So um, one day, I got a call from his son that the doctor, he was you know, really terminally ill. He was very, very, very unwell. He had cancer. His own daughter was uh, an oncologist, so they knew exactly where they stood. And uh, an appointment had been made with the doctor to come and terminate his life on such a date. And uh, so the son phoned me and told me about this. And um, so I tried as 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 well as I could, I tried to get a flight to go and see him, and I couldn't. Uh, it was impossible. The, everything was booked. So I phoned him, and I said, Guy, I'm so sorry. I won't be able to make it. I won't be able to see you again before you go. And he said, I mean, I was dumbfounded. This is what he told me. He said, uh, don't worry. He said, the restaurant where you're going after my funeral is closed on the day we had booked a funeral for. So I've postponed it by five days, which he did, which was just incredible. And I, I'm looking at a picture of him right now. And uh, and at the back of his mouth card, he had written himself, uh, we we'll have to translate it from French into English, the ultimate dignity for a human being is to be able to face death face to face eye to eye, but it's really difficult. That's what he wrote. So he postponed uh, his own death because the restaurant didn't have a booking or the restaurant wasn't open. Is that? that Yeah, he postponed it. He postponed it because the restaurant wouldn't be opened on the day where we would go there. And did you get there for the the actual? Oh, I did, I did, I did, I did. We drank half a bottle of whiskey the day before and uh, yeah. And about, uh, I think about seven or eight months later, his wife, Lulu, uh, had a really, really bad stroke and she also had made necessary arrangements. And one day I got a Zoom call and I could see all the family in the garden, you know, drinking wine or whatever. And uh, and she was at the back. And uh, and I said to my cousin, oh, is that her birthday? And he said, no, the doctor is coming this evening. Well, it's a definitely a different attitude than you might find oh, here. Uh, totally. W- would and you do it yourself, Kurt, Jacques? I need to, I, would you do it yourself? Yeah, definitely. But if I was... Uh, if I, I I've seen a driver with a cliff more on my motorbike, but I don't know if I would have the courage. But if I was disabled to the point of not being able to care to, for myself at all, I surely would. Okay. I mean, there's nothing fun to see somebody, you know, somebody's body break down completely. Um, Jack, I, I'm sorry to cut across you, especially when yeah, you're it's right, such a sensitive right. topic. But uh, I'm I'm being told I absolutely have to go to this last break. But thank you for that. Really, really fascinating insight to how it's done in other places. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Joe Duffy. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. 
And we're over time now. Uh, apologies to Ray. On sound today, we had Ashley Grofferty, our BCO with Shane Galvin, and the programme was produced by Nadine Maloney. Stand by now for Ray. 0818 715 815 stays open until 3.15pm or email joe at rte.ie.